I think investors need to get comfortable with the fact that tighter policy is a good thing because that means the economy is growing and that's why the market has responded so favorably 12 months after the last hike. From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Hello, Ryan. Hey, John. How are you doing today? Good morning. Good morning. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Um, all things considered, you know, we did have a big game over the weekend, so there's you know, probably a lot of people calling in to work. Uh, some are happy, some aren't. Do you have a you know a quick take on the big game this weekend, John? Yeah, absolutely. Manchester United beat Leicester City one nil, and uh, <laughs> they've now won ten straight. So it's pretty exciting stuff. No, no, no. I meant the Super Bowl, John. Oh, that. Oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> that one. Since my Giants lost out. By Labor Day weekend, and my Panthers lost out by Halloween. I, I had forgotten the NFL was still going on. Well, it, it did, and just a uh, spoiler alert, the Patriots did it one more time. So obviously, congrats to the Patriots. It's truly amazing how they just keep doing it. Every year, people call them out in October and November, and then you look up, and they're right into the Super Bowl and earning a uh, – we playfully pointed out last week, John, and then we want to get into what we're talking mm-hmm. about this week, but we playfully pointed out the Super Bowl indicator historically says stocks are a little bit worse when the AFC wins versus the NFC. Of course, we'd never invest on this, but it's a, it's a fun one. And so the AFC team just won. So maybe be on the lookout for a little, little choppier market purely based on absolutely nothing but randomness. And it's even more nefarious, right, when the Patriots win, not necessarily the AFC, but when the Patriots win, it's actually a little less for the market, Correct. Yes. I mean, clearly they've been in a lot of games, so, you know, you can skew some of the data, but just when they were in the game, they've been in some bad years, 2008, and then obviously last year, 2017, all negative years. Last 25 years, we haven't had that many negative years. The Patriots have been in a few of them, so that's something to uh, to watch, I guess, again um, this year with the Patriots just in the big game. All right. Well, before everyone disconnects, maybe we should go on to more positive things. Certainly what exactly. we'd like to talk about. Well, again, congratulations to the Patriots and all their fans. Truly a phenomenal organization if you think about. Obviously, Brady's been there for 18 years in the Super Bowl, half of that time. I mean, with he and Belichick, just incredible. But what amazes me is he does it with different talent each year. And that really speaks to it. And obviously what the defense did confusing the Rams was pretty impressive. But nonetheless, let's stop digressing and we'll focus on this edition of LPL Market Signals podcast. Clearly a lot of things to discuss. Last week we had some improving economic data. We had a Federal Reserve that appears to have made a U-turn. And then finally, uh, Ryan, in some of the discussions you and I have been having, we can find five or six historical uh, trends that would suggest the January gains are not anomalous and that we could have a pretty good year going forward. So why don't we get started first with the economic data? No, that, that's exactly right, John. So I'll tee it off for you, John. So like you said, last week, you know, we had the Fed, and they did their thing saying they're going to be more patient. We can get into that. But the overall economic data, John, was pretty good. We had a over 300,000 jobs number on Friday. A little bit better than expected manufacturing data came out of the U.S. and even globally some bright spots of manufacturing, which has obviously been very weak the second uh, half of the year, specifically the fourth quarter. I mean, what should investors take away, John? I mean, the Fed said they're going to pause. But the economic data all of a sudden is pretty strong, along with really strong earnings that we've been talking about every week. What should we take away from all of last week there? Well, I think absolutely. Since the market pulled back, we've had two jobs reports, and we've created more than 500,000 jobs over the past two months, right, with a 300-plus print last month and then a downward revision for December, but still, you know, north of 200,000. So the fact that the economy is still generating not only job growth, 
but what we would characterize as healthy wage growth because average hourly earnings are up maybe 3.2% or so on a year-over-year basis. And I think it's really important for our listeners to appreciate that wage growth in the sense that it's in this little sweet spot really gives the Fed uh, an opportunity for that pause because historically wage growth north of 4 4 4.5%. That's when the Fed tends to get trigger happy and feels the need to slam on the brakes. But we don't believe that's the case now. Very impressed not only with the jobs report that we saw last week, but there was some concern about ISM manufacturing data. Now, the ISM, as we discussed a couple of calls ago, uh, more of a survey data. But nonetheless, we had a big drop a month ago, but we had a healthy increase uh, last month. So I think to the degree that new orders are up, we still see activity in the manufacturing sector. We had a very good print on industrial production last year. So I think those are all positives. And as we've discussed many, many times, Ryan, we need clarity on trade so businesses can resume capital investment because capital investment is what boosts productivity. And when productivity is rising, that means wages can rising at a non-threatening pace. And that doesn't destroy corporate income statements and it supports margins going forward. No, you're right, John. So I'm going to take a trip down memory lane here. Exactly a year ago, the Friday jobs report for January, if we remember, it was in early February, that number came out. Oh, yeah. And the year-over-year wage growth was a little hot. Now, specifically, that led to pretty much the first 10% correction that we saw last year. So the market was very concerned about potentially overheating wages a year ago. Well, you said you fast-forward what we just saw on Friday. We had one of the higher year-over-year wage growth numbers this cycle, and clearly, you know, S&P took it in stride. I mean, John, the Dow's up six consecutive weeks here. S&P did have a down one there, but it was up last week. So really, on Friday, we took potentially a little bit higher inflation wage growth right in stride. And as we've noted, you know, many times, it's up around 4% year-over-year wage growth is when you kind of get it near a late cycle and the Fed puts the brakes on things and that's when you get into trouble. We're still quite a ways away from 4% year-over-year wage growth, which then kind of happened right ahead of the previous three recessions. But, John, one thing I want to kick back to you, the balance sheet on the Fed. The Fed said they're going to be more patient, market-liked, but the balance sheet was $4.5 trillion. The runoff started October of 20, um, this would have been 20 of 17. Balance sheet's around $4.1 trillion now. They're still running off $50 billion worth of um, security, bond securities each month. But they might actually stop that a little sooner now is kind of what the market is kind of reading between the lines. What should investors think about here with the runoff maybe uh, stopping a little sooner than we initially thought when it started well over a year ago? You know, before that, if I may, you bring up, you know, a year ago, the jobs report, you know, that print was 2.9% on wages. Right. So we literally had gone from maybe 2.6 in December of 17 to 2.9 in January of 18. Oh, and the frenzy that ensued, right? It was the first correction that we had experienced in probably 18 months at that point, right, since the initial Brexit vote. So it really was a fascinating market response, and to the degree that we were three-tenths of a percent higher last Friday when the jobs report came out, and the Dow still managed to persist with six consecutive week of gains. That's kind of interesting. But to bring back to your question on the Fed and balance sheet, certainly wanted to talk about the economy, and we did see good jobs and uh, good manufacturing data. So I think from a fundamental standpoint, that's important for all our listeners and all investors to embrace. The second theme that we want to talk today about was obviously the Federal Reserve, and specifically, Ryan, to your question about the balance sheet. You know, the market has responded favorably to the whole idea that the Fed is going to be less aggressive on the federal funds rate in the coming year. In fact, it's conceivable the Fed is done, given their patient comment in their statement uh, last week. Uh, We don't believe they're necessarily done for the cycle. 
And to the degree they're not done for the cycle, that would imply that, you know, we do get clarity on trade so businesses can keep investing. So they may feel the need to raise later this year, more specifically in in early 2020, if we do get that capital investment rebuild that you and I have been projecting. But to the balance sheet, there's some concern or some hopes that the Fed would stop. And I'm not necessarily in that camp. The Fed balance sheet runoff, as, as most of or all of our listeners know, I'm sure, you know, last 10 years or so, the Fed has embarked on innovative monetary strategies to combat deflation. They were all would suggest that they were successful with that because we did beat deflation. However, the unwind of those policies is very difficult. And I think that's why Jerome Powell, I think he's done a masterful job. It's a terrible job, but he's done it well trying to unwind that balance sheet. And to the degree that the market can be comfortable with market interest rates rising, right, as opposed to the federal funds rate. The federal funds rate is the overnight lending rate that the Fed is in charge of. Ryan, you and I and all investors are in charge of market interest rates through supply and demand. And to the degree that the Fed allows that to continue, that really steepens the yield curve because, A, the Fed's no longer backstopping treasury auctions. B, by allowing maturing securities to roll off their balance sheet, that has an upward bias to longer-term interest rates. You know, to the extent that that steepens the curve, I think that's a positive development. But there is speculation that they're going to slow it down. The Fed does have a balance sheet, and we'll take everybody back to Accounting 101. It's assets and liabilities. The liabilities are the required reserves that the Fed needs. And, you know, we had an $800 billion balance sheet in August of 08, and as you mentioned, Ryan, $4 trillion plus now. So to the degree they keep it up with $50 billion a month, uh, $600 billion a year, I'm okay with that. If, you know, if they're going to stop anything, they'll probably stop on the Treasury side, but I think they would want to allow the mortgages to roll off. So I'm not convinced they need to do that just yet. Let's see what happens in the second half of the year, but you're absolutely right. Speculation was uh, rampant uh, the last several days as to whether or not they're going to conclude that policy. Uh, you're exactly right, John. I know it was earlier last week the Wall Street Journal had an article kind of opening the door uh, potentially to this, and obviously on Wednesday during the Q&A session after the Fed interest rate decision is when those questions came up. And obviously, when you look at the reaction, though, you know, Wednesday was a really good update. Thursday, Friday, market hung in there really tough. I mean, the, the thing we kind of talked about, John, historically, when Powell had talked at you know Q&A sessions after these interest rate hikes, Markets have sold off. You know, December 19th, he made the comment about autopilot. People, you know, it's never this simple, right? But he said about the, their policies are an autopilot regarding the balance sheet. Market didn't like that and had its worst um, one-hour sell-off in a year on December 19th. Right. He's obviously come back a little bit, and it's never that simple. But still, we finally had a market that actually kind of bounced um, on a Fed decision and, and when Jerome Powell, uh, Chairman Jerome Powell spoke. So there's a small little subtle potential positive. And John, one other thing, and we talked about this last week, but I think it's really important. Let's say the Fed is pausing. You know, we've done work on that three and six months out. If the Fed is taking a pause, markets can do just fine, actually gain. If December was their final was their final interest rate hike, which is in really our camp, but you know, there's always a possibility of that. We looked at the last one, two, three, four, five, last six cycles, John, one year after if it was the if December was the final rate hike, on average. So if they're taking a pause, if this is the end of hikes, history says you don't just fall right into recession. You don't just trip and, and go in trouble. You can have still an extended cycle of uh, growth and potentially equity gains as well. What do you think about that? So repeat that number. Do you say 
12 months later? That's correct. Going back to May of 81, we looked at the previous six times the Fed had the last hike in a cycle. 12 months later, the S&P was higher four of those times, four out of six, but up an average of 12%. Just put it in perspective. The last hike last cycle, John, was June of 2006. A year later, so I guess that'd be June of 2007, if my calendar's right, the S&P was up 21%. So, you know, that's just one stance I'm aware, of, but still, if they're at the last peak, the last interest rate um, increase during this cycle from December, you can still, that's one one small bullet point that suggests, again, uh, economic growth and equity gains are potentially likely. But the larger message on that bullet point, I think, is as important, if not more important, than the historical 12% gain. Uh, I, I think investors need to get comfortable with the fact that tighter policy is a good thing because that means the economy is growing and that's why the market has responded so favorably 12 months after the last hike. And I think that's something, you know, I don't want to be an apologist for the central bank. Jerome Powell has had some difficulty from a messaging standpoint, but as I said, a difficult job trying to unwind a $4 trillion balance sheet. You have to be very careful with that, right? The comments he's made, you know, adjusted for inflation, the real federal funds rate is what, maybe 25 basis points now. Historically, it's 400 basis points before the economy slips into recession. So when he's made those comments about policy being accommodative, he's not tone deaf. I mean, he, he, he is looking at the data. And I'm just wondering if, you know, the markets are really appreciative of the fact of how unique this past decade has been. And then you could look at, you know, other ways of the Fed funds rate historically a full percentage point below nominal GDP, which is GDP as we discuss it, real GDP plus inflation. So if you want to think about an economy growing at 2.5% with 2.5% inflation, that's 5% nominal GDP. And the Fed funds rate, the upper bound is only 2.5%, right? Yeah, so half of that. 250 basis points. So, you know, he's right when he's saying policy is still accommodative. I just think the whole idea that the rate the economy can take, in my opinion, a lot higher than the rate the market is willing to accept. And I think that's part of the confusion, and I think that's lending itself to some of the volatility. So perhaps he was willing, you know, to take a few bullets from the media and from the markets uh, as he really tried to get that message across that, you know, we started raising rates December 15. At some point, you guys are going to pay attention, and the curve needs to steepen. That's why I would like to see the the balance sheet runoff continue, because that is perhaps the most market-driven tailwind for rates than what policy's been over the course of the past decade. Right. And John, one more thing from us, maybe then we can get into more equities. We talked about this. Historically speaking, the first year after a new Fed chairperson, markets have a funny way of testing them. You know, the best mm-hmm. example is August of 87. Uh, Greenspan took over. Of course, we had the crash of 87 there, but it was a lot different environment with stocks up significantly back then. But we talked about it. There's a lot of volatility. Markets can test New Fed chairman, last year, two 10% corrections, first half of the year, 19.8%. Let's just call it a bear market uh, correction, a second half of the year. So, my goodness, there's lots of other things that we've talked about. But sometimes markets up nine years in a row, or they got the on a total term basis up nine years in a row. New Fed chairman, they had uh, they had a dance for about a year, eye to eye, maybe not even eye to eye, but just to test each other. The market sure tested our new uh, Fed chairman last year, as, as we just discussed there. Yeah, and what was the first day on the job? I remember we were having an investment management committee meeting and uh, looked up on the Bloomberg, and we were down 800, then 1,200. Where did exactly. we close down his first day? February 8th, but what I know for sure is the Dow dropped 4.6% on his first day. So we had that big drop the Friday before on the jobs number, and that caused some volatility. 
then the next week, his first day on the job was the worst. First day drop ever for the Dow, going back well over 100 years with a Fed chairman. So, How do you like you know, me now? Welcome to your new job. <laughs> yeah. Too funny. Well, thankfully, I, you know, we... We joke because we survived it, thankfully, but it was obviously a very difficult period for investors. And, you know, again, you know, we keep talking about focusing on the fundamentals, whether it's the improved jobs data we've seen, the improved manufacturing activity, obviously some good consumption with wage growth, and that bodes well for future consumption. Looks like the Fed is pausing. But I do think it's important to characterize the recent 10 or 12% market jump off the low of Christmas Eve, you know, we've been we've been messaging to our investors that that was the easy part. You know, we're up 10 or 12% now, now from the low, and now we've got to start thinking about, okay, what is it going to take to get us higher? And what are some of the things you're looking at, Ryan? Well, John, you're right. I mean, let's just put it in perspective. December for stocks was the worst drop in 87 years. You flip that, in January, the S&P gains just under 8% for the best January in 30 years. So, that right there tells you how volatile things have been. But the one thing that we actually talk about in this week's weekly market commentary, we'll have the data in the show notes to this podcast. One of the things we like to see off of lows is a buying thrust. What's that? Keeping it simple, a lot of stocks making a 20-day high. John, recently, the second half of January, we saw over 70% of S&P 500 components making a 20-day high. Highest we've seen since 2011. We went back and looked at previous times we'd have buying thrusts like this. We found um, over 10 of them going back to 1990, John. Three months, six months later, outperformance. 12 months later, S&P 500 has been higher every single time. And again, that data is in the show notes to the podcast. You can take a closer look. And in this week's weekly market commentary. But what we just saw the second half of January is really a potential positive sign we made, a, obviously, a pretty significant low in late uh, December, Christmas Eve, and maybe even more gain could happen. Like I said, it's not going to be easy. The easy part was done. You drop a ball from you know off the ceiling, it's going to bounce for a while. Then it's going to kind of peter out. We might be close to a little bit of consolidation and pullback here. February, historically, can be a troublesome month. Still, um, that much participation is one thing that I think is really powerful for investors to know that it's rare, but at the same time, really a positive sign. John, what are some other things that you know, are on your radar that maybe say you know, six to 12 months later, we could see higher prices still? Yeah, I think first and foremost, we need to recognize that historically the market retest bottoms, right? We have to be right. very, very mindful of that. But I also recognize that there was extraordinary circumstances relative to Fed messaging, unwinding a $4 trillion balance sheet, confusion over the federal funds rate. And then secondly, right. we had uh, the largest liquidation or redemption for hedge funds in the month of December that we had of this cycle. So to the degree a lot of those trades were levered, that could have accentuated some of the sell-off. But nonetheless, uh, when you make your point, Ryan, about 70% of companies in the S&P 500 having hit a 20-day high uh, just last week, the forward 12-month returns there are about 12%. And historically, the market generates average annual returns on the S&P, call it 8%, right? So you have a 50% increase in the average return potential. So I think that's important. But also, we had a momentum surge over the past 20 trading days. The market was up north of 10%. And the historical data showing when you have big rallies like that, now obviously it's, it's a small sampling data, but nonetheless, you typically see gains of about 12%. 12 months thereafter. And then if you look more fundamentally or relative to market interest rates, you can look at the equity risk premium, 
which is basically the earnings yield of the S&P, which is, I don't want to get too geeky here, the inverse of the PE on the market. But nonetheless, it's a good way to value stocks relative to bonds. And the spread between the earnings yield and the 10-year treasury is 25 to 3% currently. And historically, when you have a widespread there, forward 12-month returns also happen to be 12% or slightly north of that. And then what else do we have, Ryan? We have a third-year presidential cycle. Historically, that, those gains are what? Maybe double historical averages? Exactly. We'll talk about you know some presidential things here. So this is the third year of the presidential cycle on a total return basis. That year hasn't been lower since 1939. And again, you see very significant, almost 16% average returns on the S&P during those years. Also, as we've noted a lot last year, you go off the midterm year lows, go out 12 months, which we now know obviously was December 24th. And then again, back to World War II, a year later, S&P 500 has been higher every single time with some pretty significant outperformance, up almost 32% on average off of those midterm year lows. Those are some definite other things to consider that sometimes the presidential cycle, people want to get reelected and realizing they just lost some votes at the midterm year in the House and in the Senate potentially, and you come to the board, whether it be fiscal policy or tax reform, whatever that deal might be to make the economy get better, stock markets potentially get better, to get reelected at the next election. Those things have been there throughout history. So that's just other things. Those two, two are other ones that we're obviously actively watching here. Yeah, so I think it's really important to recognize historically there's a tendency to retest, but we believe there are a few circumstances that could preclude that possibility relative to hedge fund redemptions as well as uh, mixed messages, if you will, from the Fed. You know, the last five or six points we talked about double-digit return opportunities historically, right. given what we discussed about the momentum surge. But most important, as always, Ryan, right? It's about fundamentals, like we highlighted in our 2019 outlook. To conclude, I think we just need to keep everybody focused on improving manufacturing data, improving jobs data to the degree jobs are growing without a threatening wage. Uh, impact. Consequently, the Fed need not be as aggressive. And then we can use these technical tailwinds, if you will, due to the momentum surge, but we must focus on the necessity for clarity on trade so businesses can get comfortable investing again, because I believe that is what's going to extend the cycle. Any closing uh, exactly, thoughts, Ryan? John. So I had a lot of fun this week, and the one thing we'll say maybe we should just kind of ignore is the fact the AFC won with the Patriots. Maybe we'll focus on the fundamentals and that. Not pay so much attention to what happened uh, with the Patriots winning yet another Super Bowl. So, John, I'll let you sign off. Had a lot of fun this week and look forward to being back next week on our podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate that. And everyone just focus on the fact that earnings and income may not sell advertising space, but earnings and income compounded annually will certainly help you achieve your long-term investment goals. So thank you all very much for listening. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us next week when we'll continue to analyze and discuss market signals. Stay connected by following us on Twitter, at LPL, or at LPL Research. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. LPL Market Signals is presented and produced by LPL Financial. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. For additional description and disclosures, please see the Full Outlook 2019 publication. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide or to construed as providing specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual security. Any economic forecast set forth in this podcast may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee the strategies promoted will be successful. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risks, including potential loss of principal, 
No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee return or eliminate risk in all market environments. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. This research material was prepared by LPL Financial, LLC. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, and SIPC. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered independent investment advisor, please note that LPL Financial is not an affiliate of and makes no representation with respect to such entity. The investment products sold through LPL Financial are not insured deposits and are not FDIC, NCUA insured. These products are not bank credit union obligations and are not endorsed, recommended, or guaranteed by any bank, credit union, or any government agency. The value of this investment may fluctuate. The return on the investment is not guaranteed and loss of principal is possible.